Hi, listeners. Welcome to the Grief Out Loud podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Janet Christofaro and wanted to give you just a little heads up as you listen to this episode, you'll be hearing references to our old name, which was Dear Ducky. So just so you don't get too confused, you're listening to the right podcast and we look forward to bringing you even more great content under the Grief Out Loud name. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dear Dougie podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Janet Christofaro, and thank you for tuning in today. This podcast is meant to open up the often avoided conversation about grief. While loss is something we will all experience throughout our lives, when it occurs, most of us are left not knowing what to do, how to feel, or how to talk about it. So whether you're grieving a loss or wanting to support someone who is, we hope these podcast conversations lead to a better understanding of grief and also give you some ideas and inspiration for how to show up for yourself and those you care about. Self-compassion and self-care are two terms tossed around quite a bit, not only in the grief world, but social media, in the news, and even just while you're shopping at the grocery store. Joining me today to talk about how self-compassion and self-care can be powerful ways to be in and with our grief is Heather Stang. Welcome, Heather. Thank you for having me. Heather is a thanatologist, a mindfulness speaker, and author of the grief book, Mindfulness and Grief, with guided meditations to calm your mind and restore your spirit. And I will link to all of her super helpful information on our show notes, so be sure to check those out. And she focuses on teaching others to use mindfulness-based techniques to reduce stress, cope with grief, and cultivate personal growth. It's inspired by her own journey of loss, love, and post-traumatic growth. Heather is also best known for using present moment awareness to relieve suffering, cope with, and eventually re-engage with life after loss. She, in addition to her super helpful website, she has online grief support and grief coaching using mindfulness-based practices and principles of yoga therapy. Heather, I'm really excited for our conversation about this topic. I am really excited to share this information with you and with our listeners. And I have to confess, it's not something I like to tell people, especially in the helping professions, but for years, whenever I've heard the word self-care, I have like this little internal cringe. I think because the word brings to mind like articles about bubble baths and wine and spa treatments. And while those can certainly be part of self-care, for me, it seems like it's so much more than that. Do you run into that with people? Like, oh, I've had enough bubble baths today. I think Secretly, I harbor that feeling as well because there is so much unhelpful advice being tossed around under the guise of self-care. So for you, as you conceptualize self-care and particularly as self-compassion as self-care and in the world of grief, how do you define it or how do you explain it to people? Well, I think it does help that we've looked at how self-care is traditionally treated. It's it's as action, you know, get get physically fit, get more exercise, eat better, go on a retreat, stop smoking, stop drinking. And that was really true in the like the eighties. And then over time the idea has evolved to include our mental health and our spiritual well being. But the question is how do we tend to our mental health and our spiritual well being, especially when we are knee deep in the suffering of grief. And so the way I define self-care as I see it and as, as I offer it is as a practice of making skillful choices that will improve the quality of our life that goes beyond just creating healthy habits, but also includes cultivating an attitude of what we call self-compassion. 
So the idea that you can tend to yourself as you would tend to a beloved friend or a family member or a child or even a pet. Or the other way of looking at it is how do you want to be treated? And I often use the example of dementia caregivers because I've had family members in in dementia care units and have witnessed a variety of caregiving styles. There's the person who shows up and, you know, clothes and bathes and feeds your family member, but then they're out the door and there's, there's no connection. And then there's the person who comes in and takes all their frustrations out on the patient, which is really heartbreaking. You know, all of their own stress shows up at work. But then you run into the person who shows up to work, but you can tell they really care. There's, there's a passion for helping others that goes beyond just getting the paycheck. You know, they tend to the patient or your family member with this real open heart and kindness. And even if the patient can't cognitively understand that this person is providing care, the caregiver offers it anyway because it not only calms everybody down, but it makes them feel good. It makes it easier for them to sleep at night. It makes the families feel good. So with self-care then, is it helping people provide that care for themselves? Exactly. And so it's asking the question, what kind of a caregiver do you want to be? Because all three of those examples got the job done, but it was the how did they get the job done? And that's where I want to take this. So it's how do we want to be with ourselves? And with grief in particular, because there are so many myths around grief still to this day, there can be this idea that there is a right way to do grief. I don't know if you see that. Every day, all day, people calling saying, I'm not, I must not be doing this right because I still have grief. And there's got to be a better way to do this because I still am sad and I'm still angry and I'm still missing the person who died. Right. And so with a self-compassionate attitude towards self-care for grief, part of that includes accepting that we feel bad because it's normal to feel bad. So not adding the suffering onto the suffering, not seeing ourselves as someone who is flawed or wrong or doesn't know what they're doing, but just seeing ourselves as someone who's in pain. If you had a friend who's grieving, you would probably not go and tell them that they're doing it all wrong. And yet we do it to ourselves all the time. Uh, And there are a few people out there who would say that to you, unfortunately. (laughs) I think it sparks some of that. We Even if we're not getting it from an actual person telling us, there's so much messaging out there around what grief should look like. You know, one of my questions for you is, you know, what stands in the way of people who are grieving being able to fully or even partially access the idea of self-compassion and self-care? And there's a lot of unconscious expectation about what grief is supposed to look like, not that someone's actually said to them, you should be in this spot, but they just picked it up along the way. Well, that word unconscious is really important because part of what self-compassion asks us to do is to really gaze at our truth because when we're in pain, our tendency is to either try to avoid the pain, to get away from it, or to kind of develop an unhealthy relationship with the pain where 
we're so engrossed in it that we can't really see what is true. And so self-compassion says, okay, I am hurting, I am suffering, and I'm going to give myself permission to hang out with that, just like I would if a friend was suffering, just like I'd go and sit down and maybe have tea with that friend and let them talk, and I would just listen and maybe not even offer advice, but just witness it. That's what you wind up doing for yourself with self-compassion. What pain is really here? And it doesn't take away the pain itself. If, if somebody you love or, or even just somebody you've, you've had an attachment to, maybe you had an ambivalent relationship with them, if they've died, you're going to feel pain. But what self-compassion does is it allows you to not feel bad about feeling that pain. It allows you to say, oh, this is natural and this is normal. And somehow that creates enough space that, that we can then take some action on it. We can ask ourselves, what do I need? And the answer, it could be a bubble bath, but it probably won't be. <laughs> the answer might be that, you know, I need to actually go and talk to somebody about what I'm really feeling. You know, maybe I need to go to... Um, a helping professional, maybe I need to talk to a friend, or maybe I realize that my pain is really wearing down on my body and I'm feeling tense and tight, and so maybe what I'm going to do is go and, and practice some stretching or some yoga. So see, here the intention for doing the self-care is rooted in a knowing, not just in a list that you read somewhere. Right, like really tapping into what's true for you responding in the moment to what your body is needing rather than having chore wheel of self-care where you can then beat yeah. yourself up for not actually doing it. Like, you know, I do this every day, I do this every day. Not that building a, a consistent practice isn't helpful, but to have that mm -hmm. flexibility to meet yourself where you are in the moment. And I can say as a helping professional, we don't always know what our client needs. I had one gentleman that I, I worked with and his wife had died and after she died, he went on this vision quest. He got on this motorcycle and rode cross-country and, and came back home and started up with my mindfulness and grief course. And what came to him during one of the practices is he just got this memory of how good he used to feel when he swam. He used to be a, a competitive swimmer. And so at the age of, you know, he's, he's now in his 60s, and he decided that he was going to go swim. And that swimming, that practice of swimming actually became a big part of his own healing because it was a returning back to himself. It was a time of contemplation. You know, there was some physical activity, obviously, which always helps when we're feeling, you know, low and depressed. I could have never <laughs> known that that was what he needed. And so what I love about these self-compassion inquiries is it lets you tap into your own values and your own resources. So when you talk about self-compassion inquiry, practically speaking, like what what does that look like? You know, because we can say, you know, you know, check in with yourself and be like, I don't like do I go to the coffee shop and order myself an extra latte and sit down and talk <laughs> to an empty chair? Like how do I actually do this? You can try that. I don't know how long they've <laughs> let you stay in the coffee shop, but the actual practice, there are many, many, many self-compassion practices, but to get to the one that you're asking about, how do I get to that inner wisdom, that inner knowing of what I need to take care of myself? And there is a technique that is, is 
out there in the meditation world, and you don't need to have a meditation practice. You don't need to have any particular belief system. This is just about paying attention to yourself. And the idea in this practice, which is called RAIN, R-A-I-N, it's an acronym, is to first recognize that you are suffering, recognize that there's a pain, and decide to let that pain play its course without running away from it. The R stands for recognize, the A stands for allow, and that allowing is saying, okay, instead of going and drinking a bottle of wine, I'm going to sit down and breathe and and see what happens. The I in RAIN stands for investigate, and this is where the real work happens. Instead of investigating the story or analyzing what could I have done, what could I do, the thinking part of it all, you actually drop the story and turn your attention to your body. You pay attention, what does this, let's say anger is what has been coming up for you. What does anger feel like in my body? Where in my body am I feeling it? You know, maybe you're feeling it in your clenched fists, in your clenched jaw. Your stomach is really tight. And during that investigation piece, you just pay attention to what anger really feels like. Then the second part of investigation is to notice where in your body are you not feeling anger? Okay, mm. well, maybe I'm not feeling it in my shoulders. And so you, you also notice maybe I'm not feeling it in my feet. So right there what you've done is you have noticed that you have anger and you have parts of yourself that aren't feeling anger. That's a mindfulness experience. And then you ask yourself, are there places in my body where I could maybe let go of some of this tension or pain, just physically. We're not talking about changing the story or or coming up with a solution. Maybe I can unclench my hands a little. Maybe I can soften my jaw a little bit. What happens here is you've taken yourself out of rumination, and it also will switch your body out of that fight-flight-freeze and that stress state, which allows your brain to flip over into what we would call the tend and befriend mode or the, the, that nurturing place that we can get with ourselves. So after that investigation, we go into N, which used to be taught in a couple different ways, but more recently I've heard it taught in a way that I love, and that's nurture. It used to be taught as non-identification, where you say, well, I'm not my anger. You know, I'm bigger than my anger. And that's great, and I still think that's helpful. But the idea of nurturing is, okay, what do I need? Now that I know how anger shows up in my body, what can I do about it? What do I need in this moment? And again, for each person, what shows up in that nurturing phase is going to be very different. Again, it might be, well, I need to go tell somebody how I feel, or maybe it's I need to pay attention to when my body tightens up and invite it often. I, I actually used it at a funeral for somebody I hadn't seen in many years but really cared about, it. and I was feeling so overwhelmed. And here I am, a grief professional, right? I'm supposed to, quote, unquote, have it together. And I felt like I was going to wail. And I thought I if either running out, that was an option, right? Get up and leave. <laughs> But I was sitting next to a colleague, and I had that that whole thought of, like, I don't want to miss this, and good Lord, you know, I have to have a skill. I'm a professional. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I have rain. And 
in in about 90 seconds, I went through that practice. My body softened, the overwhelm turned into just sadness. So instead of overwhelming sadness, it was just, it was sadness, which I could deal with. And from somewhere inside of me, and this, I couldn't have crafted this, just these words showed up that said, make a bed for your sadness and let it lay down. Those types of words don't always show up. I was grateful they did in that case because I was able to sit and witness and still feel the sadness, but to feel it in the present and not feel so overwhelmed. So I use this myself, and my clients find it to be really helpful, too. And it's great in the Pacific Northwest. It's easy for us to remember rain because it does that (laughs) nine months out of the year. (laughs) When we talk about self-care, people go so quickly to the activity. They're like, what do I need to do? And this has seemed so helpful to back it up a little bit. Like there's a lot that goes into even getting to that place of choosing the action or the non-action that's going to be the most nurturing, but I need to do a little bit of exploring to figure out. So I'm picking something that's going to meet my need. And what's great is it allows us when we're grieving to chart our own course through the experience of grief. I think practices such as RAIN, it's like, okay, well, when you don't know where to go from here, just slow down and do this practice. And it really is a radical act of self-compassion to turn towards this feeling and then choose based on what you need. And how powerful to feel like not only do I know what I need, but I have the tools to get to what I know I need so that it doesn't feel like it's something so outside of who I am that I have to, you know, if it's 2 in the morning and I my therapy appointment's not for another week and my grief support group isn't until, you know, two days from now, there's something I can do for myself in this moment. Absolutely. One of my biggest jobs as, as a mindfulness for grief instructor is to let people know that they do have these skills because so often people come to me and they say, what do you do? And I tell them, they're like, oh, I'm a terrible meditator. I tried it and I'm just bad at it. And so in stripping away the myth that it's not about being a good meditator, it's just about having regularity. It's not about clearing your mind. It's not about staying present constantly. It's not about being perfect all the time. You're going to crash and burn from time to time. You know, you're going to sit there and you're going to do your rain practice and find out that 10 minutes in you've been thinking about how angry you are at somebody. You weren't actually paying attention to your body. You're going to get off track. I experienced that recently with someone who's like, wow, I, I, you know, realized that I wasn't even hearing your guided meditation because I was in an argument with somebody, you know, Mm. with the person. But then, and I said, so what happened? She goes, well, then I realized that I was having a fake argument that hadn't even happened. And so I came back to my body and I was like, perfect. That's the practice. The practice is knowing when you have drifted off and lost your way so that you can bring yourself back and start again. So there are no bad meditators. There's people who meditate and there's people who don't meditate, and that is it. Yeah, the goal is not to not drift off, is to be to catch yourself and see it and watch it and be curious about that process. And Heather, you shared the the brief story of being at at the funeral and and using the RAIN practice of recognizing, acknowledging, investigating, and and nurturing for your own self-compassion. Are there other ways that you've seen this work change you, change your grief? Yes. 
really when I think about self-compassion and grief in my own life. I I think back to when my stepfather died, which was it'll be eight years this Memorial Day weekend, and um, their self-compassion and and working through my complex feelings around that was so key. For one, he'd he'd had elective surgery and had called from the hospital and let me know that his best friend was driving him home and could I go get his his pain prescriptions and some, he wanted three milkshakes and two hamburgers because that was Tom's way, um, which was kind of Very cute. specific orders. <laughs> he was, flavors and where to get it. It wasn't, it was go here, get this. Before I went and ran those errands, I thought, oh gosh, I am going to be driving back and forth to his house, which is a half an hour away, a lot, because he and my mother were four days away from being divorced. I decided to stop off at my college library and get some books on CD to listen to. And I was kind of like, I I mean, to be honest, my attitude was, oh, this is going to be a pain having to go to his house so much. I got to find a way to escape from that. And when I pulled into his driveway, the first responders were there and it turned out he had walked through the door and collapsed. While no one was saying he was dead, he was dead. And the guilt I felt over taking time in the library, over feeling resentful that I was going to have to take care of him over the next couple weeks, it, it was pretty overwhelming and took probably a, a good year to really work through that. I mean, it, it lessened after a few months, but, you know, there was the magical thinking. If I'd gotten there sooner, he wouldn't have died. And then there was also the guilt over caring for a man who had treated my mother pretty bad. He had bipolar disorder, and I've worked in mental health, so I can understand that. I have a lot of compassion for that. And at the same time, he caused my mother a lot of suffering. And so there was a lot of complex feelings. So it took me a while. And and I share that it took me a while because self-compassion is a practice. It's not a pill. It's not something that once you practice it, you are immune from self-criticism. And it took me probably a couple months to get back to my meditation practice. And eventually I was able to see myself as somebody who was in a really difficult circumstance. Like, I didn't know Tom was going to die. Of course I wanted a book on tape. That's not a big, that wouldn't have been a big deal had he not died, you know? And And it's interesting that you were were turning to something to take care of yourself and then turning to self-care created this situation that really added so much suffering and guilt and worry and concern that you had done something wrong. And shame. There was shame there, too. And after, you know, practice, I was able to see the thing I did do that was helpful, which when I saw him lying there, I dropped to my knees and I held his hand. And I remembered a speech given by Ira Byock, and he gave the the four things that you say when someone's dying. And, And I grabbed Tom's hand and I said, you know, probably not in the right order, but I said, I, I love you, I forgive you, please forgive me. And I, I said that over and over again as I was crying. I now remember that moment more and with, with a lot of love and care than I remember the shame. I guess the shame is gone because I realize it wasn't my fault. 
And so even as a grief expert, even as a mindful, like I was in my last semester of, of getting my master's in thanatology when he died. So I was already running mindfulness and grief groups. And so I'm sharing this very raw story because I hope it helps people who are listening know that it's not going to always be pretty and perfect and easy. But when you can apply these principles of self-compassion again and again and again, it can reduce what could be a lifetime of suffering. And for me, it stripped away the painful stuff and left behind the beautiful stuff. And now I can talk about Tom and incorporate him to, into my life. And I have his artwork hanging, you know, around my house. And I use his camera to, to video my grief sessions. I have, a, I have a continuing bond with him that I don't think would be as free and open if I wasn't able to tend to my own shame around how I was that day. Yeah, and these are just really easily accessible, I'd say simple, not always easy, tools mm-hmm. to use exactly. to be in a state of wondering about those really ta- challenging feelings, about the shame, about the guilt, rather than just trying to like fix them or wring them out or put them away. Like, let's yeah. look at them, let's let them unfold, and then they may thanks to those practices, dissipate. Yes, exactly. You know, your website has really amazing information, and I love the that there's guided meditations that people can just tune into and listen in that moment. Can you talk a little bit about some of your other services if people are interested in, like, mindfulness coaching and the classes that you mentioned? Well, I offer, of course, in-person classes. I'm in Maryland, but most people listening to this probably are not in Maryland. So I've taken my eight-week mindfulness and grief group that I teach here, and I have put it online. And we just finished the first experience of that eight-week group online. And it was just as wonderful for me as an in-person group. So that's my big service that people out there in the world can access. I love that people can tune in from anywhere. I had people all over the world. I had someone from Switzerland and someone from Buenos Aires. And it, it just really reminded us that no matter where we are, no matter what our time zone, no matter what type of loss we experienced, we all could understand each other. Well, Heather, I just really want to thank you for taking time to share not only what you're professionally offering to the world as your gift, but your personal story that gave rise to that. It's really powerful and grateful for your time today. I'm grateful for the opportunity to share this and to talk to you. And for listeners out there, please, please, please go check out Heather's website. I will link to it in the show notes. You can tune into her guided meditations. You can learn more about her online classes and lots of other resources out there. And if you'd like to listen to any of our past episodes of Dear Dougie, you can find us on our website, dougy.org. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, any other podcast platform that you listen to. Uh, Have it on your radar. We are looking at changing the name of our podcast. We're currently Dear Dougie, but we are going to be having a name change. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks for listening.